Hello and welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. Each week, we will discuss our lives, our goals, and our expectations as artists, as well as discuss what it is to be an artist. Performers, visual artists, and musicians. Mike and I, we want to talk to you, and we want to talk to you about what you do, why you do it, and what that art really means to you. We'll have guests to discuss artistic expression and the all-around nature of the artist's lifestyle. And try to answer that question. Is there a de facto artist lifestyle? Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and join us in the conversation. Oh, well, hello there, Sonny. I, I heard you were putting on a podcast. Shane. Shane White. Why are you talking like that, Shane? Oh, because isn't this how the old folk are talking? No. Oh, so what, we can imitate teeny boppers and like, oh my god. No, we can. We can. We can. I I guess as an actor too, I, I would say I would I wouldn't make that choice. I would probably lean more into making my my voice sound a little tired. Maybe changing the pace of my speech, but I don't think I would go for like the stereotypical uh, old geezer. That makes a lot of sense in how we as actors have a conversation with text. I have been called a character actor a number of times. That's not news to me, Uh, but it is interesting how I will oftentimes latch onto a very generic silly bit of nonsense that doesn't really make a lot of sense but i start to hone in i start to shave away the nonsense and start to see the stereotype for what it is and maybe where it came from all right so let's shave away the nonsense welcome everybody to active listeners with mike and shane and if you haven't guessed this episode is going to be about ageism And as you heard, Shane definitely has some ideas about how to play an old person. They might not be the best or the right ideas, but they work for me. And maybe I have to start having a conversation with myself about how I create art and what bias lies in that. That's right. You go in the corner and think about what you've done. I'm sorry. Okay. So yes, so today's episode is going to be about ageism. Later in the episode, we are going to talk to a lifetime theater maker, director, teacher, actor sometimes, Sandra Boynton, and we're going to have a discussion with Sandy about ageism, specifically within the world of theater and also more broadly. But before that, uh, Shane and I are going to have a little short discussion about what ageism uh, is in our eyes and how it affects our society and our art. As a person who is aging... (laughs) Every day. I start to notice how people are treating me differently the older I'm getting and how different demographics and different age groups are deciding how they deal with me. Sometimes not only for the worse, but for the better. Absolutely, without a doubt. I think our 30s, you kind of come into a point where people stop disregarding everything you think because you're in your 20s. And all I can think of is, I had these same thoughts when I was 20, and why didn't you listen to me then? (laughs) Uh, I didn't. (laughs) See, I did, and it honestly makes me it makes me want to listen to the younger generation more than I feel like I was listening. I'm actually in a really unique position when it comes to that. I, I work at a university, at a performing arts center, and we have a lot of student workers. So until this recent pandemic, I would work with students about that age range every day. I find myself making some assumptions about them that are completely mired in ageism. And then one of my students will turn around and ask me how much they should be saving in an IRA so they can retire with money. And I'm like, 
I w- I didn't even know what an IRA was when I was 19 years old. What I don't know. <laughs> you seem way more prepared than I ever. Way even more currently. Pre- am. Way more prepared. Yeah. So I'm always constantly surprised. But then you know, there's also they're college students, so they do really dumb things because they're young and inexperienced. So which we all did. We all did, and Some I continually to do. do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ageism is also an interesting thing because not only does it go in every direction, right? And one could say that there are other prejudices that can go in all directions, but there are certainly aspects of ageism that for different age groups at different and for people at different points in their life, they either benefit from it or they aren't benefited from it. It's not like one of those things like racism or sexism, or homophobia, where it's a constant negative impact, it changes throughout your life, which is an interesting thing because we all get to experience the horribleness. That's that's an interesting point that I don't know that I would have come to myself. Sure. Because for whatever bias I have, I think of ageism and I'm like, oh, old people. But that doesn't mean anything and that's super offensive ageism is something that affects you depending on your age as silly as that might sound to say out loud (laughs) and like you said it is something that transmutes over your lifetime and it's interesting to start experiencing it in my 30s I think the most attention that ageism has gotten recently in our culture has been the OK Boomer phenomena, where millennials and Gen Zers kind of take all of the condescension that comes from on high and just decided to deflect it with two graceful words. OK Boomer. To satisfying effect, quite frankly. Yes, speaking as an, I think we're called elder millennials, right? Because we're kind of on the higher end of millennial. I buy that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I, for all my biases, definitely, definitely jumped right on it. Because there are just so many perspectives that fit into a comfortable preconceived notion of what older people think and what younger people think or you know what people older than me think and what people my age and younger than me think in my head part of me wants to be like defend that right because it's it's my bias it's the thing that in my head that makes sense yes please step aside so we can so so we can make this world what we wanted to be right and that's a generational thing that i think has come Every generation. We didn't start the fire. That was Gen X's okay boomer moment. You know what I mean? Where they were like, we didn't start this this terrible thing. You did. People older than us. Yeah. It has always been burning since the world has been turning. <laughs> and because Mike and I could sit here and talk back and forth about this as 30-somethings, we have guests we for do. a reason. We have guests for a reason. And the guest we are bringing on today is one Sandra Boynton. She is a delight. A delight. And she's going to share a few of her stories with us. Something new this episode is we're going to take a second to talk about something very important. And that is becoming a patron. If you like our show now that we're in our third episode and it's something that you've decided you're going to be in the long haul with us, then I would like for you to just check out our Patreon page. There are multiple levels that you can support the show and we also plan on releasing goodies for our patrons. So just go to patreon.com slash active listeners pod and check it out. With that, We have with us today one Sandra Boynton, the one, the only, the fantastic, the fabulous. Sandy, would you like to take a moment, introduce yourself, do ask all of our guests their preferred pronouns, and please tell us something about yourself. I'm Sandy Boynton. I have 
I've used she, her all my life and I respond to it. Occasionally I respond to it. If I gain any more weight, I'm going to have to be they. So those are my pronouns. And what about a little something about yourself? A little something about myself. I guess the simplest thing to say is that I've been in the theater almost all of my life. I did my first role at five. I did my first directing in the second grade when I staged mm -hmm. reading group shows. And that means that I have been in the theater 67 years. An impressive career. I have worked as an educator, not professional, as an educator, as an actor, as a director, as a costume designer, as a union stagehand doing everything but sound. I did my last professional show on the Proctor's stage as a dresser three years ago. So, so very eclectic theater Dream. career. Extreme. Yeah. And then we should probably take this opportunity to mention that Shane and I both know you under several of those titles. However, first and foremost, as our educator Absolutely. in our time in our time in college. Yep. And somewhat of a stage stage parental figure, <laughs> friend, of course. Mentor. Times uh, ass kicker when we needed it. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have done that. I feel like mentor, director, ass kicker should kind of just be your tagline, Sandy. Yeah. Yeah. Ass kicker. I think I like that. Because as much as you have done that for Mike and I, I know you have done that for countless other students that have been lucky enough to be under your tutelage. Well, I just think I've been lucky enough to have fabulous, fabulous students that I've worked with over the years, whether, and, and not just theater students, some of my English students have been just fabulous folks that I've, whom I've enjoyed working with. And I have some pretty darn good stories. In fact, I'll tell one. Teaching, Joe Turner's Come and Gone. It's a, an August Wilson play, and there is a root worker, a, a Haitian root worker in the play. And I'm trying from my Wikipedia and research to teach people what the Haitian religion and the Haitian shamanry is. And in the middle of the class, an African-American or woman in the back of the class said, excuse me, my aunt is a root worker. And I said, can you make this better than I am? And she said, yes. <laughs> 20 minutes, 20 minutes of information about that most fabulous addition to the class. It, it, you know, there's just so much to be learned all over the place. That's so interesting. It's, it almost tags back to the conversation we had with Rags in our previous episode when we referred to Bawal and that idea of bringing someone onto the stage to finish a piece. And in your case, it was teaching. It was an educational piece. And, and it happened, I had a, it was quite early in my career at SCCC, but I had an older audit in the class, a senior audit, who had fought in World War II. Wow. And the minute something referred to World War II, and he was a, a retired physician, so he, he was very articulate. I just back off and let John teach it, because I couldn't teach that, but he could. I imagine he taught you in that moment. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, you know, I, I was born two years after the war ended. Yeah, I think speaking as a former student, I think that there is a kind of special thing that happens outside of the classroom as well, because you're, I think you're just a life teacher. <laughs> there's a special, there's a special thing that happens, you know, while, while I'm having these, these moments with you where I kind of feel like, Maybe it plays a little bit into our topic for this evening. I'm just getting so much of the wisdom that comes with so much of your experience that like it will ultimately be passed on to whenever I start imparting my knowledge to the to the next generation. You haven't started yet, Mike? I think I've, I've got I've got some I've got some things yet to learn. <laughs> Don't wait too long. Just start. 
So every one of us, the three of us, have so many different accommodation of so many different skills, but that gives you a unique perspective. It doesn't matter how old you are. You're, sure, sure. I mean, I just recently learned what a fabulous sculptor you are. Oh my goodness. So that has I. changed. <laughs> oh, you are good. Oh, that has Thank changed. You. Thank you. I'll bet how you work with an acting role now that you are thinking in 3D. Ooh, he's going to start sculpting his acting roles. <laughs> well, I think you and I very, very frequently uh, have discussions about thinking in the three-dimensional and, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm usually, you know, in our, well, campus rehearsal spaces, it's coming to no surprise of anyone that's listening. Sandra <laughs> is also the artistic director of the Wilkins Players. I think this whole first season, the first few episodes of the first season is just going to be like a big Wilkins reunion. A Wilkins parade, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And I think one of the things that that'll often happen is I'll just be quietly standing upstage and out of the commotion of staging. I'll just go, can I just fix this real quick? Can I... <laughs> I just put people where they should be. <laughs> you stand here, you stand here, you stand there. And look how pretty that picture became. Look at that pretty picture. And I'll stand way back here because I'm so freaking tall. <laughs> That's right, Michael. You understand. You understand. Anytime we do it, it, the first thing we do is, Michael, just go farther upstate. <laughs> he just has that advantage point. He can look down on the scene. <laughs> I have to look up at it. <laughs> All right, time to talk about what we're here to talk about. Really dive into the, the, the meat, really, yeah. So we're here to specifically talk about ageism. And I know that's actually weirdly the last couple of years become really super, in, in the zeitgeist, it's, in the last couple of years, ageism has become more in the forefront of the zeitgeist with phenomenons such as OK Boomer and I guess Karen is has got some generational implications behind it. And I think it's fair to say that unlike other issues of identity, there are some very interesting ways to look at this in terms of power dynamic. So we'll look at it in general, in generalities, but then we're going to apply it to the profession that we're here discussing, which is theater. So could you give us some general, you know, your general musings on, on, on our society and what we were referring to when we say ageism? Boy, and, and when you had enough of this generality, shut me up. <laughs> um, seriously, because I think there's all sorts of implications for it. We, we think about ageism being focused against older people, that somehow that we retire people before their pensions become due, we find a way to get rid of them before they're vested, we find ways not to hire older people, uh, we find ways not to hire people who may have more of a liability with health care, all of that stuff. But I will also say that I think very much another function of ageism is this what I'm going to call generational conflict, which I think as a, as a notion, and I know it started with my generation, the baby boomers, because, because ad companies focused all of that attention onto one cohort of people. And then all of a sudden, every 10 years or so, or 15 years, we had to have a new generation and they had to gin up a conflict. And it's gotten so bad on some levels is that I, I watch people decide that they cannot be friends with or close to people of the wrong generation. I, I kind of wonder if part of the sort of hiding of that older generation has to do with the, the country we live in and how, at least how I see it, the older generation, generations ago, when they reached a certain age, were able to retire in a, a comfortable, safe sort of way. But that didn't, I mean, I watched that whole thing. But we can't do that anymore. That's what I mean. That's not, a, that's not an option anymore. You're not allowed to hit an age and comfortably disappear. So now we have all of this older generation in the workforce and in a part of society that they, they're filling a role they didn't have to previously fill. Well, and on top of that, people in baby boomer generation, my generation, are just plain healthier than our parents were. And we're healthier than the generation before that. 
And so that if we want to work longer or have to work longer, we're probably in better shape to do so than our parents were. And I think that that's, you know, we have not come to grips with that at all. And we have not come to grips at all with the notion of youth culture that was baby boomer oriented again, that everything is about young people and we have devalued acquired wisdom in the process. Sure. And then on top of that, you know, you have, you know, and other women professionals like you, the added weight of sexism. And actually, I would imagine your perspective on aging as a woman also plays into how you look at all this being that not only has the older person's role changed, but the woman's role in society has also been changing all this time. When I was in high school, I graduated in 65, if that helps you place that. Most of, I, I was among a very unusual cohort of people my age. 80% of my high school class went to college, 80% in 1965. We were smart, we were unusual. Almost all of the women in that group were professionals of one variety or another, teachers, what have you. I think out of the whole class, I was the only person whom I would call a professional artist. But of the bunch of us, but of the classes around us, most of the women got their MRS degrees and they became professional homemakers and child rearers. That was the job. It was not expected that a woman would necessarily go to work, except for a short period of time between high school or college and, and marriage. It was expected that if you were to be a professional woman, uh, the, the questions that could be asked of you in an interview were startling. Whether you had a boyfriend, whether you intended to have children or not, you, would, you were not necessarily allowed to keep your job if you were married and showing pregnant. Um, you would be forcibly told that you had to step back or step down. They didn't want to see that in public. I mean, it's, it's such a different, it is such a different world. So I grew up with one set of, I'm going to call them 1930s, 1940s expectations that just blew out of the water between the 50s and the 60s, absolutely blew out. And there are, there have been no real expectations. There's no, there's no role models for women my age. There's just none. We grew up with, with none, really. Um, Gloria Steinem, maybe. My mother, um, that's it, you know? So who, who would you con consider your role model? Or did you really have to sort of develop that skeletal structure for yourself? My mother, to some extent, because, because her marriage blew up and she supported my sister and me as a professional woman. But past that, it was mine. It was my idea forward. And I never thought of myself as forging a role model before, but I really did do so on some levels, especially when I was one of about four women in the local area who worked as a professional stagehand on the deck. I wonder what, what would you say is your most, like when you look back on all that, what was the point where it was clear to you that if you were going to get out of this career what you wanted, that you had to play this game? Either that you had to play the game or that you decided, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be Sandra Boynton and I'm gonna do things my way. In graduate school, I worked in the shop, Albany State. So there were people there. And one of the men who was there picking up an undergraduate degree as an older student, and I will not use his name, was picking up education because he wanted to be a professional stagehand. Some 15 years later, we wind up on the deck at practice. And I've known this man for a very long time and we were pretty darn good friends. Now, at the same time, being one of four women on stage, I guess you'd call it sexual harassment. I don't think there's any other way to put it. I'm big, I'm strong. I listen to more guff than anything. But finally, one day, I had heard the last large bosom joke I needed to hear in my entire life. 
and it was from this guy. And I was sweeping. And the next thing I knew, I took a broom and I had him up against the wall with a broom on his Adam's apple. Which end of the broom? Right across, right across the, the... The business end. Nice. No, not the business end, just the side of the broom. Oh. Across his Adam's apple. And I said, that's enough. That is enough. I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't mean to, to do this. I wish I didn't do it, but I cannot listen to this anymore. I never heard it again. And I'm not sure. I'm not proud of this. And I'm not not proud of it. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not sure that if I hadn't literally made it physical and said it stops right here and right now. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, you sort of adapted to his culture. To a very masculine culture. And I'll be honest with you, this gentleman, who shall remain nameless, who has passed away, I was fairly safe. It was, was, it was, it was very stage combat conscious. Well, you know, there were people I worked with that would have broken my nose. Oh, sure, sure. Um, but this was, and this was a man with enough uh, respect and power that I think on the one hand, it's because I treated it lightly as though it was a joke for most of the time. And then it stopped. Then it had to stop. I'd be interested to know how did that translate into the art you made? Well, I mean, at that point in my life, I was a stagehand and stagehands don't make art. Shane, <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but stagehands in the commercial theater move boxes. <laughs> and I made some few choices that were artsy fartsy at the, the time. And I got really lucky because some few times I would be utilized to take some of my skills. When Julie Harris came through with Bella Vanhurst, uh, it was a tiny production. There was really nobody on the, on the deck. I was supposed to be running lights. But when the, I saw the costume come through, it was a disaster. It had makeup all over it, mid-19th century lace dress, and it was a disaster. And I said something to the stage manager, and I spent six hours getting the stains out and doing that and, re and making her dress beautiful again. Very seldom did I get a chance to do something that added to the artistry. It was nice to handle, hand Julie Harris a dress that was clean and fresh and all the tucks were laid out right. And she liked it and she did a beautiful performance. And that I could do on occasion or the night that Ella Fitzgerald was there and I was simply supposed to be running the house lights, but the follow spot operators didn't know anything about how to light her repertoire. And Ella Fitzgerald was a sound that I grew up with. So I was able to change all those follow spot colors on the fly so that it was better colors for what's going on. But it, that was, you know. Sandy just making art better since forever. Well, I mean, it was just, you know, most of the time with that, it's, huh, you know, move a box, move the box. Hi, it, you have to, you have to take this cat's costume and slosh it around in the soap and water solution by hand for 10 minutes. That ain't art, honey. That's laundry. <laughs> but before I sound callous or cavalier, a lot of the theater ain't art. It's artisanal work. It is getting that costume clean, whether it's Julie Harris's or Grisabella's. It's making sure the box is in the right place. It's making sure the screw is tight enough so that somebody doesn't trip on stage. And that's so important because our art is so precise and it depends on such tiny tolerances. Oh yeah, yeah, um, doing that, doing that day to day in my, in my nine to five is, you know, a lot of it is either realizing someone else's vision or making sure they don't die while they're doing it. <laughs> Or on occasion, and you will get this on occasion, making a better choice than they know how to. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But this is artisanal, and I'm very committed to artisanal work in the theater. I really am. We have to get the craft right in order to do the art. Also sounds like there's a level of earning your stripes 
by doing that. Yeah. Women are aging out of this work earlier, whether that be based on uh, age as a number or age as a visual aesthetic. It sounds like it's taking you longer to earn your stripes and then you're getting less time to do the work before you are told that you're no longer viable in the system. Don't know if you're quite right. I'm rarely right, Sandy. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. I taught you well. I think as actors, there's a real problem with, with women aging out of the system. Real problem. Mostly because the theater scripts that we have right now, the vast majority of them, were written by men for men. They are men's stories. It is men's stories that we, as a society, have found interesting to stage and interesting to read and interesting to watch. And women are parts of those stories, but they're not the backbones of those stories. Moreover, I don't think the society finds mature women's stories interesting. Sorry. And so that's double whammy. So for actresses, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner in terms of casting possibilities as you age. That doesn't work quite the same way for other parts of the industry. I think you're gonna find as more and more women direct, there are going to be more and more older women directing. If you take a look at the greater capital district area, how many companies are headed by women, artistic directors and artistic managers. There's myself, there's Maggie Mancini Cahill, there's there's Tina Packer, there's Julie, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name, but both, both of the big, both of the big Berkshire Theater Festival, that's all headed by women as artistic directors and directors. And I think at this point, looksism, I'm afraid, gets into this, guys. And that what we have, what we find attractive to look at in a woman is very different from what we find attractive to look at in a man. I'm not, I'm not, no, I'm not standing up for it. I, I, I think that we are short-sighted, that we are, as usual, walking away from complexity, but this is the world that we live in right now. And that even in the brave new things being done by women playwrights, I would bet there are fewer bright, fewer roles for mature women than there are for, for younger women, way fewer. Would you say that it's true that as a result of what you've experienced uh, as a woman and like all the changes within society over the past, say, 50 or 63 years, as long as you've been doing this, is there a set amount of time in which you can see where these types of things start to level out, where these start, where we start to see? Because on, on Netflix, just a couple of years ago, the number one show was about you know two old women whose husbands leave them for each other, and I think well, it's interesting because yeah, but it was Jane Fonda, are, right? Exactly. So I'm, I'm saying these are these were two actresses that lived the experience and the history that you're explaining here and then were able to use their clout as older actors and kind of gain this notoriety i mean betty white there are too far too few and far between i think most certainly but do you think that levels out i don't know eventually I don't know. I mean, there is Judy Dench, there is Glenda Jackson, there is Jane Fonda, there is Angela Lansbury, whom I saw at 84, Dubai Spirit. Wow. All those things, they're there. But it's a, and, and with men as well, there's Sir Patrick Stewart, there's Sir Ian McKellen, there's that coterie of, oh my God, are they still alive and holy crow, they're good performers who are in this special category. I, I swear, I don't even know how they exist. They're so amazing. I, I, saw, I saw Glenda Jackson do Lear. Oh, holy. I didn't love the production necessarily, <laughs> but she was amazing, amazing. And when you see that mouth, which is the size of Arkansas, open to howl, it's the most amazing thing in the world. That happens, but I, I just don't see how all of this is going to 
hang together yet until we find a way to tell stories about mature humans, male and female. Right, because even within, even within like the world of older men, it's, you know, the stories that you touched on one yourself, Lear, Death of a Salesman, you know, these big heavy hitters that are been done and like the stories, I mean, basically stories about older men are either a Lear adaption or a death of a salesman adaption. Like that's how, that's how they work. So like, what are their seven story arcs? That's still a very narrow perspective on aging, you know. Which gets um, me back to my, my thought about all of this segregation by generation. Yeah which doesn't allow us to tell each other our stories. And it's really interesting. I tell you guys, I've been telling you guys stories for 20 years. It's so much fun to be on the storytelling end. When I say, let me tell you a story, I watch you guys, you all just take a big deep breath and I feel the relaxation. Sadie's gonna tell us a story. We can't wait. And it's, it's like little children, but it is how I connect you to the previous generation and to what I've gone through, and I do it all the time. I did it in every classroom I've been in. I still do it when I direct. And part of what's going on with this age thing is we have to tell the stories through the generations. And I wish I knew how to do that other than keeping doing what I do, if that makes any sense. For sure. Yeah, you definitely taught a generation of people how to respect the stories. And... I don't know, I, I can remember time after time after time where it didn't seem to matter what we were personally going through. When we came to Sandy, there was a story. There was something to learn. There was something to gain. And I know years ago, I certainly took advantage of that because I didn't think I had any stories to share back. And Sandy kind of just taught me that it isn't the age of the person telling the story it's what you what you learned from the story what you can share from that story what you can teach from that story but that's the whole basis of theatrical art right there it's finding the story and telling the story and sharing the story with an audience in a way that they can react to it or with it and then tell their story in that framework that's the whole deal folks so now speaking to your most recent experiences with theater and surrounding this topic, how, would you f how do you feel about where you are in your career now? Oh, wow. I don't even know if it's a career. It just, I sort of feel like the Energizer Bunny. I just keep banging the damn drum. But about 20 years ago, I slowly started pulling away from the 20th century notion of the 19th and 20th century notions of the theater and tried to get back to finding that relationship between the text, the performer and the audience. And that's really what I've been doing pretty much nonstop, even as an educator, trying to get that relationship, that fundamental relationship. Because when it comes to spectacle, film or video can do it better than the live theater ever thought about but the relationship, the sharing of the story, the storytelling, the energy coming back at you. And the thing I made you guys do all the time was to sit down and do a talk back with an audience so that we could start the notion of a social relationship as a part of the theatrical experience so that people find a way to take that information that they've just gleaned or the emotional reactions they've just had and share them and keep the story running. It makes it tangible. It's no longer, you're not, you're not a spectator of art, you're a participator. You're always a participant in it. Story. I took a group of people to New York City to see Beauty Queen of Linane in the afternoon and Wit with Kathy Chalfant in the evening. Beauty Queen of Linane got every damn Tony there was that year. Every damn Tony. So we go down to the village and we get into this 99-seat theater where the only entrance to the stage and the only entrance to the auditorium was the same drape. And we saw Wit. Now, if you, don't, if you haven't read Wit, read Wit. That's your assignment, gents. Fine. When is it due? <laughs> it's about a 
nearing retirement age English professor at NYU who discovers she's dying of uterine cancer. It's amazing. It's about poetry and about the teacher-student relationship because one of her doctors she'd given an A minus to and he wasn't happy about it. And it's about her mentor. It's, it's, it's this brilliant play. And I don't know if you know Kathleen Chalfant or not as an actor, but I suggest you should see her before she gets old. Or She's really my favorite actress right now, has been for a long time. The end of the play, she dies. And you know she's dead because she takes all of her clothes off and she's stark naked. And it's amazing. All you could hear in the auditorium was sobs. Just sobs. Just sobs, the lights go down. Nobody moves, just sobs and sobs. And people weren't necessarily sad. It was just that overpowering, the sobbing. The lights come up, the audience jumps to its feet and starts applauding. I don't know if the hands clapped first or the butts were out of the seats first. You can't have that experience any other way. And then since we all shared a bathroom, Kathy Chalfant was in there going to the John when we were all leaving. You don't get better than that. No, you don't. And, I, and, and the, the, the reality of it and the, the ability to look her in the eye and say thank you in the job. <laughs> yeah, maybe don't talk to people while they're peeing, Sandra. <laughs> We're doing the 21 second wash and, and I got tears running down my face. I'm saying thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean, it's hysterically funny when you think about it, but it meant so much. You're right. You're, you're never getting that experience at a movie. I, you know, I've, you go to movies with friends. Well, we used to. And right, who knows what's going to happen now. And you would stand outside the movie theater afterwards and you'd kind of talk about it and chit chat for 30 seconds to a minute. But there was never that emotional investment that you're talking about. I mean, and again, this may be generational, but I know when I go to New York with my good friends to go see a play, the intention is always is that we'll go out for dinner afterwards. But first we go to a bar after the matinee and we sit down with cocktails and we talk about the play, seriously talk about the play. Um, what we saw, what we didn't see, what I liked, what I didn't like, where something for me, again, as a director, ooh, that didn't, you know? And, or that was brilliant. I don't know how anybody could have done that any better. But that doesn't happen. Go to the parking lot, jump in the cars and disappear. What do you do with all that stuff if you can't share it? I'm serious. What do you do with it if you can't share it? Yeah. Yeah, you just you just kind of you just Let kind of internalize it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like we do with so many other things that we feel. It really blunts that ability to build community. Like I think about it and you, like you said, Mike, you internalize it. You sort of let it drift away. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like... I, I've, I've certainly had conversations, you know, about a movie, movie, you know, cinema heads or whatever, you know, post movie. But I don't think I've ever went and seen a play and, and yeah, not immediately immediately delved Broke down play. every facet of that yeah, yeah. And like how it made me feel and like even if it's as, as simple as like discussing what about the production you really enjoyed or didn't thought maybe could have been executed better you're still kind of still living in the space of the play because you were in the space of the play and you're also using, so, you know, for 90 minutes or the whatever, community of the playgoers to help dissect that play. You know, sure. plays are 3D. You know, there's a lot to understand and break apart and digest. And when you see something together in that group and going out to get those drinks, it's some of the best times I've had. You know, I you remember the plays, sure, but I tend to remember the conversations post-play more. But isn't that what the theater is about? so that we can create another play? Certainly. To me, again, and this is because I'm older, but when I was coming up, there was a theater community and we went to plays together and we saw plays together and we <coughs> argued about plays and we, we argued about scripts and we got passionate about whether Tennessee Williams was better than Arthur Miller. Yes. Or um, can, some, can much someone of an other than a, a gay person direct Tennessee Williams? Think about that. Those, those, those sorts of things. And I don't see that happening 
past the past the 70s i saw that mostly disappear now that may be me and it may may be that i was doing theater with undergrads where i really couldn't i mean we can't do that anymore we can't hang out with a bunch of undergrads and do this conversation with beers like i did when i was an undergrad i spent Almost all of, you know, after rehearsal, after a show, after whatever, there was a bar that the theater people hit, faculty, a lot of the arts faculty, and the, the theater students. And we all sat together and we socialized together. I won't say drank together. We usually ate, actually we ate like, you know how hungry you are after rehearsal. And we, we just eat. The waitress would keep everything going so that we come down like a bunch of locusts and clean the place right out. <laughs> but I think I learned more about the arts in Connie Bars at St. Lawrence University than I did in most of my classrooms because it was so rich and intense with the people who did the art and who were the faculty. It was, well, Shane, you remember what it was like doing KCACTF when instead of the artificiality of being faculty and student, we were working to get something done in the moment. That was, That yeah. stuff dropped away. I mean, I watched you guys cherish those moments. It was because it was the first moment that anyone said, hey, the art you have and the art you make has quality, has value and is appreciated. It's not just something you're doing to disappoint your parents. It's something that will and can change perception. And that's one of the things that has not changed in the United States, and it is not good. It is not good at all, that the arts do not have enough value that we consider ourselves valuable and valued. I want to tell you, the first time I took myself and students to London and was in a city that valued art and artists and the theater most especially. I cannot tell you how much better I felt about myself. I cannot tell anyone what it was like to be there and realize that I had come home and that coming back to the United States, at least in terms of my artistic spirit, was exile and has always been exile. That does explain why the first time I met you, you told me to run away from theater. <laughs> the first time I met Sandy, I was like, hey, you're in charge of the drama department, right? I'm thinking about joining. And she's like, you don't want to be a performer. <laughs> you don't want any part of this life. And I listened to her for like a year. And then I went back and I was like, you tricked me. Well, this life, this life is, it's almost monastic. Our system in the United States does not, means the only field that I know of that's almost as bad as music where everybody gigs, nobody has any security, nobody has any health care, you don't dare not take the next job, you, you take every job that comes at you as fast as you can get it, you sometimes fudge what you're able to do to just keep food on the table. Oh, I don't even want to tell you that story. But it's, it really is a tough, tough business. And there are no really good labor rules for what you can ask actors or stagehands to do when you're down to tech week and it's got to happen. It's got to happen. I did three weeks in a professional scene shop that I will, I hope I would, I could not do again. It would kill me. But we were behind on getting something out for Disney. You can't and, piss off the mouse. You don't mess with the mouse. You don't mess with the mouse is right. And so literally, now I'm not joking. Literally, the game was you worked until you couldn't work anymore. You fell asleep. You got up. You had to wash. You came back in and you worked. Was it? We got it done. Walt Disney on ice is not my favorite thing. Whew. I think there's probably a club for that. That piqued my interest a little bit. I want to I wanna get your perspective on it before we, we ask you to do the fun portion of our interview. Okay. You, you mentioned that actors in this country are forced to compromise, sometimes forced to do things that they would otherwise not do. I can attest to this 
as a black actor in this country, always searching for an opportunity to make moves or like become better. I sometimes am forced to look at a part or take a part that maybe I don't agree with, man, am I just, just gonna play another traditionally white character because that's all that there is to do in the theater community here right now because it's not a play about a slave some unfortunate black person being saved by a white person so like i i've constantly had to kind of play that game i wonder what your what your how that reflects on women's experiences as they age as performers do you think a lot of that plays into why we are where we are in that regard there's a, I need to unpack what you had to say because there's sure. a ton of things in there. Yeah, yeah. There's a ton of things. First of all, the thing that strikes me is that the stories that we tell are very limited, and that in the in the process of the storytelling, you as a as an actor of color are constantly having to tell stories that aren't your stories, or are just limited stories. Women as they age have a, a similar kind of limitation to the stories. You all know I work mostly with Shakespeare, but the older women in Shakespeare, either they're some sort of evil thing or they're, they're ditzes like Mistress Quickly. Oh, there's Queen Margaret. Oh, God, thank God for Queen Margaret. You know, they're, they're just a limited number of stories. And I, I, I suppose I've got to give the culture part of a past. We've only been a hundred years or so, or maybe 150, that women, that older women actually existed in any numbers, that they didn't die off in childbirth. Sometimes we want stories, but they don't exist because that didn't happen. You're, as a Black actor, having to tell stories you want to tell. They aren't part of your experience. I don't know who's writing the stories that you want to tell, which means that some of us really have to start telling those stories ourselves and finding ways to get those stories produced ourselves because the commercial biz is going to keep replicating what sold last week. They're going to go for the sure thing. There's, I mean, there's so little sure thing in this business, but they're not going to tell a story that the commercial producers are not going to tell stories that are not going to sell. You're hearing my frustration with this as well. Just so you understand, it isn't just an actor of color having to do and say things that he doesn't find attractive. As a technician, when I was working in the Caribbean with a company ostensibly run, run by Americans, it was ostensibly run by the Caribbean, by Caribbean natives, but it wasn't. I was told to tell the topless dancers that at rehearsal they needed to take their blouses off and their bras off now. I did it. I also dropped out of the commercial theater almost immediately thereafter, as soon as I got back to the States. Because I was never going to do that again. Never going to do that. Because I think the, the folks that wanted to see them just wanted to see flesh. Another one of those things I am not proud of. Whether you're proud of it or not, it is part of your story. It is part of the reason that we brought you on today and wanted to have this conversation with you. We, as artists, care about the stories you want to tell and have to tell. Which I think sort of brings us to our fun portion in the sense that before we started recording today, you were talking to me about wanting to read a couple sonnets. Back in the dark ages when I was in college. <laughs> Not joking. Back in the dark ages, I tripped into a class called the Oral Interpretation of Literature, which sounds god-awful. And it really... Ah. Reading aloud for adults. You made it sound great. Can you, you say did. it again? You made it sound very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it was my one of my Hogwarts moments. And I literally fell into this class, not knowing anything about it. But I have since then always loved to read good literature aloud to other people. I just love to do it. So what I've got for all of us tonight are two sonnets two very different sonnets written at very different times. I am going to do them in the reverse order of when they would have been composed, but it's the order in which I became passionate about them. The first of them is a Victorian sonnet 
by the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. He was a British priest who gave up writing when he took the priesthood and he almost lost his mind and the bishop had to literally order him to continue to write. He's very passionate. So the first of these is a sonnet called Carrion Comfort. Not, I'll not carry in comfort despair, not feast on thee, not untwist slack they may be, these last strands of man, me, or, or most weary cry, I can no more. I can, can something hope, wish day come, <laughs> not choose not to be. But ah, oh thou terrible, why wouldst thou rude on me, thy ring-world right foot rock? Lay lion limb against me, scan with darksome devouring eyes my bruised bones and fan. Oh, in terms of tempest, me heaped there, me frantic to avoid thee and flee. Why? <laughs> that my chaff might fly, my grain lie sheer and clear. Nay, in all that toil, that coil, since seems I kissed the rod of hand rather, my heart, lo, let strength stroll joy, would laugh, cheer. Cheer whom, though? The hero whose heaven-handling flung me, foot-trod me? Or me that fought him? Which one? Is it each one? <laughs> that night, that year, of now done darkness, I wretch lie wrestling with my God, my God. Little Victorian hysteria. Hopkins had real, real issues with God, and he fought hard battles. It, it, it's poetry. Man, poetry. we could have had a coffee together. Yeah, <laughs> he was, he was, and brilliant, 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 brilliant. It's, it's, it's. The first time I did it, I did it for a class, actually. And the teacher said, I didn't think anybody could ever read that poem. Well, now you have to try to live up to that with your second one. So good luck. Second yeah. one, believe it or not, is easier. Uh, it's way easier. This is the poem that if someone asks me to read at a wedding is my go-to poem. This is my dear friend, Uncle Will Shakespeare. And this is Sonnet 116. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error, and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. Well, I know there was no error in bringing you on the podcast this evening, Sandra. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is so much fun. I, I don't teach anymore, and I miss the classroom. I miss the opportunity to share things. Well, whenever you you want you feel like teaching anybody anything, you just give us a, you give us an email, and then we'll we'll have you just come on and and teach Shane and I something if you can think of something that you haven't already taught us, which I'm sure there's plenty of. Absolutely. <laughs> so Absolutely. I'll teach you how to make corsets. Oh boy. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we want to thank you very much for coming and thank you so much for your readings and everyone. If you would like to stay up to date with what Sandra Boynton is doing creatively these days, it's a little sparse. However, 
Sandra will be featured in Will Kemp's Players radio play adaption of A Christmas Carol. Sandra will be playing the narrator um, and is magnificent. And we can't wait for that to hit the digital airwaves this holiday season. Thanks again for coming. We, we love you very much. And for our audience participation this week, we want to know how old you are and how do people treat you and how do you think your age impacts how those people are treating you. Thank you for listening to Active Listeners and join in the conversation. Peace. If you like what you hear, leave us a rating. And if you really like what you hear and you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash active listeners pod and become a patron. Our theme music, It's a Trap, was created by Remodel. Thanks for listening.